The ancient Greek historian Thucydides tells us that as the Peloponnesian War broke out, quote, the Athenians thus long lived scattered over Attica in independent townships. Even after the centralization of Theseus, old habits still prevailed, and from the early times down to the present war, most Athenians still lived in the country with their families and households, and were consequently not at all inclined to move now, especially as they had only just restored their establishments after the Median invasion. Deep was their trouble and discontent in abandoning their houses and the hereditary temples of the ancient constitution, and at having to change their habits of life and to bid farewell to what each regarded as his native city. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. The Peloponnesian War, in fact, changed not only Athens, but Sparta and the rest of Greece forever. Strong and vibrant after defeating the Persians in the early 5th century BC, their conflict with one another, 431 to 405 BC, brought weakness and eventually conquest by Philip of Macedonia and later the Romans. It's not just a fascinating story, but one that may well speak to us today. Dr. Pavlos Papadopoulos has been reading Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War with our freshmen. Who is Thucydides and why did he write this book? We know only a little bit more than the first sentence of his own book about, about who he is. The, the, the history that he writes begins, Thucydides, an Athenian, wrote this war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians. Uh, beginning at the moment it broke out and believing it would be a great war, more worthy of relation than any that had preceded it. So he's an Athenian living in Athens in the uh, second half of the 5th century BC. Uh, during the first half of that century, the Persian Empire had invaded Greece twice, and Athens and Sparta had been the two great cities rallying a number of other Greek cities uh, to resist those invasions. Thucydides belongs to the generation after those wars. Um, he's living during the peacetime in between, relative peacetime in between the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian War, which he writes about. And he actually is not only an Athenian, but at, at a certain point, an Athenian general. He tells us in the middle of his work that he was responsible for reinforcing a city that a, a Spartan commander was, was coming to attack, a city named Amphipolis. And Thucydides wasn't able to get there in time with his Athenian forces. And as a result of this, the Athenians were very angry and the Athenian democracy exiled him. And so we know from his own words that he was an Athenian, he was an Athenian commander. He watched the war closely uh, from its very beginnings. And after his exile, he had more time to do that. He says, I had leisure to continue this, this inquiry into what this war was uh, how it came about, why it came about, what the motives of the participants were. And we don't know very much beyond that. Uh, we don't have a lot of records about this man, Thucydides, beyond what he tells us himself in uh, in his book, which is really the, the bare minimum for realizing that he is a, a competent author to speak about this. Uh, well, is he a historian or is he almost a journalist? Uh, yeah, he doesn't. He himself doesn't use the the term historian or even history in his work, which is surprising because we always refer to it as his history of the Peloponnesian War. Certainly, it it, it makes sense to call him a, a historian, 
uh, in retrospect, he is the second great Greek historian after Herodotus, who records the Persian Wars or who analyzes the Persian Wars. And he's very interested in uh, cause and effect. He, Thucydides, is very interested in the cause of, of events. So I think it's fair to say that he is a historian. He's sometimes referred to as, as the father of histories. Um, sometimes Herodotus is denigrated as the father of lies because Herodotus's <laughs> history is so much more fantastical uh, and, and half mythic than Thucydides's, which is almost scientific in the language that he uses and in, in the methods he pursues. Uh, just for an example of that, the very opening of his history, uh, Thucydides writes that this war between the, the Peloponnesians and the Athenians was the greatest movement or the greatest motion yet known in history. The word for movement or motion is kinesis. It's, 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 the, it's the word for uh, bodies moving in space, among other, other things. And so there's a way in which Thucydides' writing of history is kind of like uh, an exercise in physics. He's trying to understand motion, and he sees the great big motion of the war, and he wants to know what its cause is. Um, the way I understand that uh, is that the most obvious sense in which the war is a motion is that there are lots of men marching around, burning down cities, fighting, sailing on ships, and so on. Uh, but Thucydides wants to know the cause of that, and the cause of that is you have to go into eventually into the human soul. The cause of men marching out and killing each other is speeches. Uh, so a very prominent part of Thucydides' history is all of these great exercises in rhetoric uh, and persuasion of cities deciding to go to war or politicians arguing for war or for peace, uh, cities uh, appealing to more powerful cities to spare them or to form an alliance with them and so on. And so those, those speeches push, in a way, uh, push the cities into war and push the, the men to, to move in the visible way that they do. Uh, but we can't leave it there, and Thucydides doesn't leave it there. He goes one level deeper. He asks the question, why are, why are speeches made in the first place, and why do they grab onto the souls of their listeners? And there he talks about the passions that are in the soul. He talks about fear, the desire for honor, self-interest, a sense of justice. And these are the kinds of movements, the deepest movements of the soul that manifest themselves in speeches or in re receptivity to speeches. And then that, in turn, manifests itself in, in what we recognize as as the war. Another, another point to make on this point is that uh, Thucydides describes his own history as being useful. Uh, he says that he wants his history to be judged useful by those inquirers who desire an exact knowledge of the past as an aid to the understanding of the future, which in the course of human things must resemble if it does not reflect it. Uh, and, he, and then he makes the claim that I have make, I've written my work not as an essay, which was to win the applause for the moment, but as a possession for all time. So the idea there is that history is not just a, a kind of academic or even scientific pursuit, but it, it's actually a practical science. It's not a speculative science, but, but a practical science. It's like ethics or, or the study of politics or the study of economics. It's meant to culminate in action and inform action through, through the study uh, that he undertakes. And the implication that he makes in, in the passage I just read is that because human nature is the same in all times and places, if you give a really adequate study, an exact study of a very big movement, such as the Peloponnesian War, then that will actually have lessons for people living thousands of years later in different parts of the world. Now, it's a huge topic, perhaps for another podcast, but tell us a little bit about the Athenian leader Pericles and his famous funeral oration. I think that illustrates what you're talking about. Pericles is 
the greatest leader um, of Athens in between the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian Wars, and then and then he leads Athens into the Peloponnesian War. Um, Thucydides at one point says that during his lifetime, uh, during Pericles' lifetime, Athens was nominally a democracy, but with Pericles was becoming rule of one man. And, and he doesn't mean to criticize Pericles for that as, as being a tyrant or something. Uh, it's, all very, it's all done very legally. Uh, but, but what he means by that is that the, the, Thucy the um, Athenians elected a number of generals, a number of, of war leaders every year, uh, 10 strate strategoi, strate um, of generals uh, every year. And Pericles was almost always elected <laughs> every year. So they, they kept voting one man in and, and rotated the others. And because of that, because he was able to persuade the Athenians that he had the character, the knowledge, uh, the power, and the good sense to be a good leader of theirs, he, if, he gave a kind of stability to what otherwise would have been a very unstable political system of, of democracy with very quickly rotating offices. So Pericles comes into his own as a politician in the decades right before the Peloponnesian War when Athens is rising to its height of power. It is it has become an incredibly wealthy and powerful city in part because of its navy, which it built in order to fight the Persian Wars and that it has kept in the decades afterwards. And so by the time the Peloponnesian War approaches, Pericles is already the almost unquestioned leader in Athens. Everyone, everyone looks to him. Uh, and he is very insistent in the first speech by Pericles recorded in, in Thucydides' history. He's very insistent on, on not backing down against, against the Spartans. He says, we, we need to be prepared to go to war and we have to accept war rather than allow them to boss us around. Because if, if we give an inch, they will, they will take a mile. And so he, he leads Athens into the war. Uh, he gives them sound advice as to how to conduct the war in a prudent manner. Uh, Sparta is this unquestioned land power. It has the greatest infantry uh, in Greece. And Athens is not. Athens is a great naval power. And so he actually says, we have these wonderful walls around our city connecting us to a port. We have a naval empire. We need to cultivate our navy, focus on our navy, make incursions on the, on the Spartans from the sea and not, not go out and confront them on land uh, directly and also not undertake any, any new great expeditions or projects. These, this is advice that Athens later will, will disregard after Pericles' death. Uh, but he, so he gives them this kind of guiding advice as he, as he leads them into the war. He's most remembered by us for his funeral oration, which is given after the first year of war. Sparta and its allies have been invading the countryside around Athens, burning the country homes and farms of the Athenians. And there have been some, some relatively small battles between the Athenians and the Spartans. And Pericles gives the funeral oration as an oration for the funeral of all of those Athenians who have died uh, in the first year of combat. It's a really striking uh, speech because what he says is that I'm going to, I'm going to give an account of why we are so great, <laughs> uh, wh why we rose the level of national greatness that we have. And he says, in order to do so, we have to look at our regime, our government, uh, our political system, and we have to look at our, our habits and way of life. And so this is really delightful for people who are interested in political philosophy like myself, because he, uh, Pericles, embodies this classical political philosophical approach of, if you want to understand why a country or city is a certain way, you need to look at their regime and way of life. Um, and so he, he praises Athens for its democracy. He praises it for really its dynamism. Uh, and, and he praises the Athenians 
uh, for their, the, the, the very strange fact that they're able to live as, uh, however they please. They are not the kind of very strict law-bound society that Sparta is. So he, he celebrates the fact that they're able to live in a much more free and easy manner than the Spartans. And yet when push comes to shove, they always rise to the occasion and resist uh, challenges and overcome challenges. Uh, this is a bit of a paradox that I, I just, uh, my students were, were hitting upon in, in class just earlier this week. Uh, how, how can you have both of those at once? It seems like Pericles is saying the, the Athenians have the best of both worlds. They don't have to put up with all of the rigor of the Spartan education, and yet they're able to, to beat the Spartans uh, when they need to. And I think Pericles' own rhetoric is a big part of that. It's, it's precisely through persuasion to, to, as he says in the funeral oration, to make the Athenians fall in love with a city. Look upon her, he says, uh, look upon the power of Athens until love of her fills your hearts, and then you'll be devoted to her as a lover is devoted to the beloved. And so through that desire for honor and glory that comes from self-sacrifice in, in service of the beloved city, Pericles is able to steer the Athenians who are otherwise somewhat um, loose and easy in, in their way of life compared to the Spartans to, to rise to the occasion and, and fight and overcome all of these challenges. Now, how long did the war last and what was the outcome? It's almost a 30-year war, although it's, it's broken up into a, a number of, of stages. Uh, in in the, the first 10 years or so uh, ends after the leaders of the war parties in, in Athens and Sparta respectively die. I don't mean, I don't mean Pericles. Pericles dies relatively uh, early in the war, but another man named Cleon rises. He's, he's a bit of a demagogue in, in Athens. And he and another, uh, a man in Sparta named Brasidas uh, become the, uh, the most insistent pro-war politicians in each city. They both die after 10 years, and then, and then an Athenian named Nicias comes in and, and forges a kind of peace, which is supposed to last a very long time. And Thucydides himself says it actually operates as a kind of uh, an armistice, not, uh, a, a ceasefire, not a, not a true peace. Um, the war is restarted in part because of a young Athenian named Alcibiades, uh, who is the foster son of, of Pericles, who at this point is, is, has been dead for a while, and who notably is also a sometime student of Socrates. So we actually have Alcibiades appear in, in Platonic dialogues. Not, not a very good student. Not a very good, well, <laughs> in his defense, what, what Alcibiades says is, when I'm with you, I'm I'm the best student possible, right? When, when, when Alcibiades is in the presence of Socrates, he, he can think of nothing except for the beauty of philosophy. He wants to be totally devoted to Socrates. And then when Socrates leaves, he sort of forgets about it. He goes back to carousing and drinking and all kinds of other uh, activities and sometimes uh, encouraging his own city to go on a fantastical imperial expedition to conquer Sicily. And so in, in 415 BC, roughly 15 years after the, the first part of the war began. And while Athens and Sparta are still nominally at peace with each other, Alcibiades convinces the Athenians to launch this amazingly large naval expedition to go conquer the entire island of Sicily. Um, and Alcibiades' own plans are actually even, even more uh, fantastical than that. He, he later says that his plan was to conquer Sicily and then Italy and then Carthage and then Egypt and then come back to Greece and conquer the Spartans. Uh, bring, sort of bring the whole Mediterranean back with him uh, and, then, and then use the force of that against the Spartans. In other words, this is, this is a couple of centuries before the, the Romans go to war with Carthage in the, in the Punic Wars, which, which lead to 
Rome being the, the dominant power in the Western Mediterranean, and then later in the Eastern. Alcibiades was envisioning something like Athens becoming the empire that would rule over the whole Mediterranean. Uh, it does not work out. Instead, it's, it's, it's quite complicated, but Alcibiades is recalled to Athens, put on trial for impiety, um, in part because of, uh, just as an excuse by his political enemies to, uh, to destroy him uh, and take advantage of his bad character. Uh, in, in so doing. And the, the Athenian expedition to Sicily fails after a few years. It, it fails quite horribly in a kind of tragedy, and the Athenian army is wiped out. Uh, many of them are sold into slavery or, or simply slaughtered. And then Athens is in shock in, in 413 BC when, when the expedition has failed. And yet it amazingly rallies for another nine years of war, uh, even though it has just lost really the flower of its youth and a, a huge number of ships and material in its, in its Sicilian expedition. In 404 BC, the Spartans finally defeat the Athenians and they impose on Athens something called the 30. Um, the Athenians will later refer to them as the 30 tyrants. It's a small oligarchy of 30 Athenian men who are pro-Spartan. Uh, they, they tear down the walls uh, of Athens so that Athens is, is defenseless against Sparta. And this oligarchic regime, which, which is quite heavy-handed and earns the name of being a, a tyranny, um, rules Athens for less than a year. There's then a civil war, democratic forces, pro-democratic forces, come back to Athens, defeat the oligarchy, um, and after, after a bit of, of tension and bloodshed, they agree to a kind of amnesty that no one can be prosecuted for crimes committed uh, during, during the reign of the 30. This all is quite relevant to us and, and to the study of philosophy because five years later in 399 BC, Socrates is put on trial. Uh, and he's put on trial for impiety uh, and for corrupting the youth. One theory of why he's put on trial at this time and in this way is that uh, the, pro the, the Democrats who are back in power in Athens blame him in part for the 30 tyrants. Some of the tyrants, some of the th members of the 30 were Socrates' students or sometimes students, not, not Alcibiades, but others. Uh, and so he is blamed, and Socrates says things, it seems, that are more pro-Spartan than, than pro-Athenian in, in weighing uh, the Spartan regime against uh, Athenian democracy. And so one interpretation of Socrates' trial and execution is that it's actually a, uh, Socrates is a casualty of the civil war in Athens, which follows Spartan victory in the Peloponnesian War. What do our students think of all this, uh, of Thucydides and the wars and the, the intrigue? At present, we're, we're just a few classes in with the current freshmen. So I can speak to them only, uh, only to say this, that it's really nice we have a, a, a portrait of Athens and Sparta in the performing these great heroic deeds, resisting the Persian invasions in the Persian Wars. And then we skip forward a few generations and we look at Athens and now we, we see that even Athens, even the heroic little city, which has now become a, a, a great big city, it can fall prey to, um, to hubris and then in turn to nemesis. So, so the overweening pride of the Athenians that comes uh, with all of the power that they accrue after, after repelling the Persians, uh, they are eventually corrupted by that. Um, Thucydides gives a really nice uh, account of this. This is part of his describing the causes of, of the war as a whole. The Athenians say, after the Persian Wars, we, 
Athenians and Spartans were fighting together against the Persians. And then the Spartans went home. They didn't really want to continue the war. They thought, now that we've kicked them out of Greece, uh, our job is done. We can just go back to our old ways. And the Athenians say, no, we need to be thinking about the future. We fear the return of the Persians. And so we need to build an alliance. And the, they do. They build this great alliance around the Aegean Sea. They start collecting contributions so that they have a common, a common fund for a navy. Um, and, and so they say, at the beginning, we acquire this empire just out of fear because we, we want it to be prepared for when the Persians come back. Uh, they then say afterwards, honor and self-interest entered into it. And so they, they, they thought they were doing something honorable or they enjoyed being honored by lesser cities. They enjoyed being seen as the great protector of, of the Greek cities, a position that Sparta used to have. Uh, and then they actually enjoy the self-interest. They have a self-interested enjoyment of, of this great power. All of these great monuments from Periclean Athens, the, um, the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis, most famously, uh, many of them are paid for actually by the Athenian uh, tribute that they impose on their allies or subject cities uh, for the sake of the defense of, of Greece against the Persians. And so they, they quite enjoy being uh, this, the greatest, most shining city in, uh, in, in Greece. And, and yet what happens is that their allies or subjects start to resent them. And so Pericles says in, in the third and final speech that is recorded in Thucydides, Pericles says um, to, his, uh, to his Athenian uh, countrymen, very frankly, what you hold is in fact a tyranny. You hold a tyranny over these, these neighboring cities. Perhaps it was, it was necessary to acquire it, but it's unsafe uh, to let it go. It may or may not have been just in, our, in, in acquiring it, but that's not really relevant to our practical concerns right now. We just can't let it go because if we do, uh, all of the resentment that is built up against us will, will come and, and overwhelm us and we will be destroyed by our, our former allies. And so it's, it's a bit of a shock when, to students when we get to the, this point in the semester, seeing that, yes, that line between good and evil runs through every human heart and every culture, that, that, that uh, little, little Athens is capable of these great heroic deeds and then is capable of abusing power once it has risen to, to this great height. We like to think that world history consists of peace punctuated by war. But alas, it's just the other way around. It is war punctuated by occasional and short-lived periods of peace. And war will end only with the second coming of the Prince of Peace. Until then, we need to live as those engaged in conflict must live, with eyes wide open, with minds alert to the facts on the ground, and with hearts full of courage for the fight, while at the same time full of prayers and plans for peace. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.